We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded as the first storytellers, the first communities and the first creators of Australian culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi there, I'm Daniel Moore and you're listening to Season 4 of the Hearing Architecture Podcast, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. In this episode, Radio Tool interviews registered architect and the 2022 Queensland Emerging Architect Prize winner, Tanya Galichniko. Tanya works as a senior architect at Hassel in Brisbane and shares how she found her area of specialisation in transport architecture. She is also an advocate for enabling architecture for better accessibility in the built environment through her lived and practice experience. Let's jump in. Hello, Tanya. Welcome to the Australian Institute of Architects Hearing Architecture podcast. Thank you for taking the time to be a part of this podcast and supporting Imagine, the Institute, and Daniel Moore as the founder of this podcast. To everyone listening, this is Tanya Goloshenko, Senior Associate at Hassel, and I'm Bridie O'Toole, Architect at Cavill Architects. We are both speaking on Yagra and Turable land. So Tanya, what drew you to the practice of architecture? Hi, Bridie. Thanks for having me. What drew me to architecture? Well, I think ultimately growing up the daughter of a builder, I was probably destined to work in the industry. I grew up being fascinated by random things that most kids probably wouldn't give much energy to. I have this memory of taking two bricks to primary school for show and tell. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> one with oh, holes and one without holes and was excited to explain to my year one class what the purpose of the holes were. <laughs> I'm sure it was the best day of their lives. <laughs> <laughs> and I also did random things like another class project, like I, I painted a, a painting that was inspired by strip footings of a three-story house that Dad was building us at the time. Oh, no I way. Used to, I used to run home from school and watch the building progress every day. I was just fascinated by you know, this thing being built piece by piece. But I guess, like, I always love to craft something creative from, you know, rudimentary materials or, you know, odd materials. My senior metalwork teacher, I think, thought I was a bit uh, cuckoo or something with my year 11 art project. I created this, like, family of life-sized man-eating plants inspired by the book Day of the Triffids. I don't know if you've read it. I I use steel reinforcing rod to weld up these big life-size bodies with legs and arms and then I wove their heads out of fencing wire. (laughs) So maybe a little bit crazy. But yeah, like I I think I just always had that influence of building and building materials and things around me. So yeah, I guess that's why I I, uh, ended up an architect. Yeah, for sure. Definitely sounds like you were destined. Yeah. <laughs> so when do you think you first knew you were an architect? Some people, for example, don't feel they truly are until they're registered. But what about for you? Yeah, this is a really hard one. Like I think definitely the registration process, like it, it's always, I think you put such a burden on yourself and it can feel quite heavy. So when you pass, mm. like it always feels like a huge weight is lifted but I guess the feeling of being an architect is not instant with that process. Um, (laughs) I think there's something really special about delivering your first built project, like the realisation of your drawings gives you kind of, you know, a sense of accomplishment and you kind of, you know, see it all come together. 
yeah, like I think for me, you know, delivering probably my first built train station, I probably realised there was more to being an architect than, you know, creating something functional or aesthetic. Mm. And I probably realised, you know, that I do have a social responsibility to create places, you know, that can improve people's lives. Like there was kind of more to being an architect. And I think, you know, experiencing a space you've designed and witnessing how others use it, which you you can with Mm -hmm. public architecture, that's a really kind of, you know, cool experience. And I think um, young Tanya, who loved to craft things out of metal and bricks and wire, (laughs) you know, probably realised that she could craft these kind of cool things, but at a much larger city shaping scale you know, and that these cool things can create experiences and memories and opportunities for people. And I think that was probably the turning point for me and maybe the realisation that I was an architect. Yeah. So you were a senior associate at Hassel, specialising in urban transport. Was there a project that helped you to inspire this, that inspired this career choice? Like you mentioned that first rail project that was realised. Mm. And was that the start of that career in urban transport? Yeah, I think in relation to rail, yes. But I think like looking back, my probably my very first project in practice definitely was a catalyst for, you know, my future career trajectory. When I completed my master's degree in 2008, I got my first job in a multidisciplinary architecture and engineering firm and I got to work on the design of a marina in my hometown. Oh, wow. Yeah, and this marina project included like a really cool red lift span bridge and I guess a small obsession with bridges might have grown from there. (laughs) (laughs) But bridges are like a familiar comfort to me growing up in a small town that was connected only by bridges. I grew up in a small town called Wentworth where the Murray and Darling Rivers meet. And, yeah, like that that was sort of my first project in practice. And, you know, rather than starting out with the typical architectural initiation of drawing up toilet layouts and elevations, (laughs) I I began my career drawing up like bridge access ladders and walkways. (laughs) So I guess it took a sideways curve then. Yeah, look, I think from that point on, majority of my projects have been transport related. So, you know, train stations, bus stations and interchanges, airports, other train related stabling and crew facilities and multi-storey commuter car parking. I have done a prison. (laughs) Oh, you've done a prison. Wow, interesting. Yeah, but majority have been transport related. And and Mm. yeah, like I think I kind of just knew that architecture was something different from kind of working on that first project and yeah really enjoyed the challenge of you know these type of projects that are like infrastructure related and you know most of the projects feature a bridge. (laughs) Yeah well it's interesting that you say that your first job was at a multidisciplinary architecture and engineering firm you would have been in good company having an interest in bridges in an engineering. That's right. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it was fostered. Yep, definitely. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what fascinates you most about that sector in particular? 
well, I mean, I bridges. love that. <laughs> yes, bridges. But I, I do love that urban transport projects, you know, they have the ability to improve so many lives. The, the projects, they improve access to employment, to services mm-hmm. and to community for many, many people. You know, I get to design large city-shaping projects like Cross River Rail that create safer mm. and more connected communities. Like, that's pretty amazing. And, it, you know, it is really such a joy and so fulfilling to know that you are delivering projects that, that really do benefit so many people. I think transport projects, particularly train stations, I feel, are, you know, always projects to be proud of. Yeah, you just get this sense that, you've made a difference and you're leaving behind something positive for many generations to come. Like, yeah, I think that there's there's just a huge benefit to communities delivering urban transport projects. Yeah, absolutely. Completely agree. What do you find most challenging about this project type? Oh, there's so many challenges. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. I think that's part of the joy. Like, you know, there are so many competing requirements from so many different stakeholders that are, you know, like often in conflict with one another. Um, and so solutions to challenges are not always straightforward. You know, you have to find new and innovative ways to satisfy a multitude of requirements at once. Like, I mean, ultimately stations need to be functional and safe and durable and practical but it's a real challenge sometimes, you know, they need to be inviting and comfortable and equitable and, they, you know, they really need to deliver a sense of pride and ownership to communities. That can be challenging as well. But I do love all of the many design challenges that urban transport projects present mm. and, you know, being able to deliver these complex projects despite all of the challenges is really what architecture is about for me. So. Yeah, challenges are, are a good thing, a positive. Yeah, it's about working through those challenges. Yeah, that's right, the process of working through them, yeah. <laughs> so, Tanya, you are no stranger to Accolade and Award, Narwick Chapter Education and Mentoring Co-Chair, Rail Sector Lead at Mode, and something I didn't know about you prior to this interview was Treasurer of the Koala Action Group and now Emerging Architect Prize winner. How has advocacy and mentorship to help play a role in achieving these accomplishments? Uh, like, well, I guess there's merit in, in sort of doing something beyond ourselves to improve a situation for others. Mm. You know, I didn't sign up to all of these advocacy and mentoring roles to win <laughs> awards or anything, but I think doing these things has made me a better designer or a better leader, made me mm. sort of more self-aware and empathetic. Yeah, like I think I don't know how to say no to an opportunity as well. <laughs> but I, I think I've learned in my career that opportunities don't come around all of the time. Yes. Sometimes they seem a bit scary, but they're often really rewarding. So, yeah, and I, I think speaking up is sort of really important. So, yeah, like advocacy and mentorship allow me to do that. Like I think, you know, that there's sort of so many things that I'm passionate about, so many things that I care about, and I guess that's why I have so many volunteer roles. 
including advocating for the protection of koalas and their habitats. <laughs> well, I was going to say that must make you a very empathetic person, that role. I was very delighted to read that when I was doing a bit of research prior to pulling these questions together. I was like, oh, treasurer of the koala action group. How lovely. <laughs> yeah, but I think like, you know, that's, that's a real passion. But of course, like, supporting the advancement of women in our industry through NAWIC and the AIA is another real passion of mine and, of course, elevating inclusive and universal design outcomes. So, yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. So in your time on Crossroad Rail, the Rail Integrated Systems Project, you worked closely with the Cross River Rail Delivery Authority's Access Reference Group. How did interfacing with these users and stakeholders contrast to your previous roles? Uh, I think definitely having a client-driven and supported process for engagement and co-design is the most significant contrast. Mm. You know, a client that has a focus on providing best practice accessibility outcomes was really refreshing. Yeah. The engagement that we undertook on Cross River Rail was rigorous and consistent, but it was really genuine. It was a truly enriching journey you know, for me as an architect to have this kind of process or mechanism that was facilitated by the client to learn from people with many varying lived experiences and form relationships and work with them, you know, to identify some of the challenges and design better and go beyond standards. So I think, you know, People in the disability sector always say nothing about us without us. I think that's absolutely true. Like how can we speak for others when we mm. haven't experienced their life journeys? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Like the, the co-design process on Cross River Rail was super valuable to me. It gave um, me the chance to begin to understand some of the barriers that people might have. I mean, I've, I have a little taste of that personally myself having a daughter that was born with a disability and I guess it's kind of increased my awareness and empathy you know for the different ways that people experience the world but yeah this this forum kind of you know enabled me to kind of understand many varying kind of journeys and experiences that people have yeah we did some really cool things in this co-design process and I think One of the most valuable things was doing site visits to existing stations with, you know, disability groups. And, you know, when we were undertaking these site visits, like I got to to actually see some of the difficulties. So, for example, uh, one person in a wheelchair, like I could see how hard it was to, to traverse different surfaces, particularly TGSIs. Yeah, I was thinking TGSIs. Yeah, like it's really hard for people in a wheelchair. It makes it particularly manual wheelchairs, of course. And, you know, that some of the messaging couldn't be accessed or located by people with low vision, hearing loss or even language barriers. So kind of thinking Mm -hmm. about that and even like something like a common fixture in that, you know, the the reach-in hand dryers that we see everywhere, like someone in a wheelchair can't actually reach in and use those like there were so many lessons just from you know from visiting yeah visiting existing stations and and learning it was really kind of educational and really allowed me to design better and improve these experiences so 
yeah, it was a, it was a really great process facilitated by a client. Yeah, I didn't realize that you'd undertaken that process with them. Um, the client. Yeah, it, was it really sounds great. like it would have been really valuable. Was it one of the stations in Brisbane, the existing stations in Brisbane? Yeah, yeah. So mostly we we initially visited the stations that we were going to upgrade, but there were some other travel journeys around the city as well to visit, you know, some some of the larger city stations. Yeah, right. Yeah. So what were some of the biggest challenges of this project being cross river rail rail integrated systems project? Oh, there's an endless list <laughs> when you're delivering such a significant and complex infrastructure project. But like I think rebuilding train stations in an existing brownfield rail corridor is super challenging. Mm. You know, there are so many existing physical constraints and sometimes achieving the best possible inclusive and universal design outcomes is particularly challenging in these environments. You're constantly presented with unfavourable conditions like in the street interfaces, you know, unfavourable grades and changes in level. With the existing platforms, there are deficiencies in platform widths that constrain access pathways and you're having to deal with existing curved geometry of the platforms and curvature of the platform, it causes, you know, a horizontal and a vertical gap from the train platform to the train door tread plate. So, you know, that makes it the train super inaccessible to people with mobility devices without getting assistance from mm. somebody else, um, you know, which is not equitable. So, yeah, rebuilding the eight surface stations on the Cross River Rail Line, you know, allowed us to first and foremost, raise the height of the platforms to meet the train door tread plate so you don't have that step up anymore. Oh. But we're still left with this like horizontal gap due to the curvatures, different curvatures, so convex and concave. But we were able to improve this condition and, you know, ultimately remove the reliance on boarding ramps by using this like frangible rubber gap filler. So the project tested and prototyped this gap filler, which bolts to the platform face or platform edge to bridge the gap. And because it's rubber and therefore frangible, it means that if a train strikes the rubber gap filler, that neither the train or the platform will sustain damage, but it's still a solid enough surface that someone can traverse it, you know, in a wheel device or otherwise. So, yeah, I mean, this solution is really amazing and obviously has resulted in kind of, you know, a more equitable and unassisted boarding of the train for people, which is, yeah, a really great, great outcome. Oh, for sure. I mean, unassisted boarding onto the platforms is a huge improvement. Yeah. I didn't realise that you guys prototyped this. Yeah, we had this one-to-one model and, yeah, we had – members from the accessibility reference group come and test it with like different wheeled devices, you know, with varying size wheels and canes and, you know, even people with vision loss that might feel a bit unsteady on their feet. Like everyone tested it and gave their feedback. And initially the fingers were sort of a bit too widely spaced and, you know, that was adjusted to close it up a little bit and make it feel, you know, more sturdy. So yeah, we did we did a one to one testing of that. 
So does that mean it's the, that solution is the first of its kind in that case, if it was tested on this project? It has been used before, but, you know, the applications are so different, mm. you know, in terms of how much you want to close the gap, like how long these things are and, you know, how they're fixed and the height of them and the thickness. So, yeah, every application is unique. So we had to go through a whole mm. testing process, but, yeah. Oh, very interesting. So what was the most rewarding element of this project? Oh, I think I've had a really amazing team. (laughs) It's like super rewarding as a team leader to have, you know, really passionate, a really passionate team of designers that have like dedicated themselves to this project for over four years. And everyone's just, Mm. despite all of the challenges, everyone's just so supportive of each other. And, you know, really passionate about this project and designing, you know, really great outcomes for people and communities. Yeah, I think that's probably been the single most rewarding thing. But but also a couple of months ago, we delivered Yoronga Station. So the first of our eight surface stations to be completed. How fantastic. Yeah, which is a really fabulous milestone. But since completion, our clients facilitated a number of site visits with members of the accessibility reference group and like local community to come and well visit the station but sort of to familiarize people with the new station and from these visits we've received this amazing positive feedback from people and I think it's really you know it's just really rewarding to know that you have made a difference And, you know, some of the feedback that we've received is like the station is a win for accessibility in the wider community and Mm. someone else said the station designs are nationally significant and leading the nation. Like that's pretty amazing. I don't think it gets any better. So, yeah, there's been some really great things. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic because as architects I feel like we interpret the standards and we apply them but then when people tell you that you've achieved what they set out, to achieve in reality, I think that's that's really rewarding. Well, that's lovely Absolutely. feedback. Yeah, feedback. We don't get it enough. You know, but, no, but, um, projects take so long to be realised. Yeah, yeah. So you know, so rewarding to get that sort of feedback. You know, from the people that you know have like may not have been able to access these stations previously because Before. they weren't accessible, and you know, you have abs- absolutely changed their lives and journeys. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Oh, that must have been really lovely to hear. For sure. So you worked within the RIS team, which is the Rail Integrated Systems Project at Hassel for Cross River Rail, which meant the rebuild and the expansion of the eight existing train stations, which we've mentioned. A key element was designing the stations to be more accessible and equitable. How did you help facilitate equitable access on the RIS projects? Well, as I said before, our client facilitated the engagement process with the Accessibility Reference Group, and my role was to champion the engagement and co-design process for the Alliance design team. So, I presented our designs to the group regularly from concept design, you know, through to beyond IFC, and I think, like, I went on a journey of learning through that process to really present in a more accessible way. So, you know, that meant designing more inclusive communication tools 
Mm-hmm. So my team and I had to really reevaluate the way we orally and visually presented material. So, for example, you know, not using our sometimes alien archie speak to describe things, oh, <laughs> but course. to describe, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like we really had to describe designs as if there was, there was no visual to refer to. So really descriptive language, describing every element on a page as you sort of journey from left to right to kind of build a visual picture in a verbal way. You know, we also changed our visual presentation to use larger fonts, contrasting colours, you know, so that people with low vision or colour blindness, you know, had better access, you know, using our sort of generic design templates wasn't enough. So we kind of had to really think about communication. But I think to be truly inclusive in the way that I presented designs along the way, it really meant being also able to communicate in a tactile way. So yeah, to ensure that our blind and low vision community members could experience the designs and provide us, you know, this really valuable feedback that we received throughout this process. We designed these, well, yeah, 3D printed tactile models of the stations. And yeah, we print things all the time, but these models were really designed to be kind of experienced in a different way. So, you know, shorelined with fingers from the street, the point of arrival to the train entry point. So, you know, we learned that we had to emphasise certain elements like curb lines and and other things to allow this to happen. So that was, yeah, a really interesting process and really valuable because we got some amazing feedback. Oh, we also, we did apply Braille to those 3D models as well. So, you know, we consulted with Braille House in Brisbane and they helped us to apply Braille to key elements. But yeah, I think, you know, it's it's kind of one thing to stand up and present your designs, but really thinking about being inclusive with your communication is another thing mm. that we probably don't do well all the time. <laughs> yeah, I think it's really easy to get stuck in presenting in a very repetitive way that you know, we always do. And when you, it's interesting that you talk about presenting in a way that's not just visual, but also tactile. I didn't yeah. really think about that, obviously not, not being someone that struggles with low or no vision. So yeah. that would have been a really interesting way to interface with the Cross River Rail Delivery Authority Access yep. Preference Group. So for sure. So I feel like we've already touched on this, but how do you think these upgrades to the eight existing train stations will change the quality of life of the community? Well, I think we need to remember that one in six Australians have a disability. So it's a really large portion of our communities. And, you know, they often have little access to public transport. And if they do, it's often inconvenient for them in terms of distance and usually requires them to seek assistance from others. So not super equitable. But we also have like super diverse communities, particularly here in southeast Queensland. There are people from so many different cultural backgrounds, abilities, ages, genders and experiences, right? So, yeah, I think, you know, we've we've taken eight inaccessible stations and redesigned them to to have, you know, the best possible access outcome that we could achieve. And, you know, 
this means really that there's now greater opportunity for a greater number of people to access jobs and sporting games and social activities and, you know, other important services in a more affordable way. You know, they might have caught private taxis and things before, but now the stations Mm. are actually accessible. So, yeah, you know, but I, I think it's also really important to remember that disability is not always permanent. You know, nearly all of us are presented with access challenges at some point in in our lives resulting from temporary and situational conditions. So, you know, breaking a leg or even being heavily laden with children and prams and suitcases and bags. You know, I think the whole prams and kids and bags thing has definitely deterred me from taking my daughter to events like the ECA particularly as a single parent with no help. But I think once we complete exhibition station, I might I might take her. <laughs> <laughs> well, the new station will drop you off like right in the middle of the action. There will be lifts and wide paths and generous bathrooms and all the things to help alleviate stress. But um, I think Eka was talking to a good friend of mine who has a disabled teenage son and, you know, She's like, well, now I can, you know, take him to events at the showground without worry because, like, we're also providing an adult change facility, which often, you know, if there's not a facility like that can prohibit people from a day out. But, yeah, like, I think, honestly, we just need to remember that more inclusive design outcomes really benefit everybody and they just make our cities more diverse and vibrant and good architecture leaves no one behind. Oh, I like that. Yeah, I definitely agree. So there have been a lot of changes recently to the NCC and reform in particular to the disability standards for accessible public transport. So within Cross River Rail, TSD and RIS, it was called DSAPT day-to-day. What do you think that means for the future of design and architecture? Well, I think the changes that we're seeing in this draft legislation, so the new DSAPT legislation, is really encouraging and it will challenge us all as designers to design beyond minimum standards. So, you know, adopting best practice design solutions. So, you know, there will be more inclusive and more equitable outcomes because of these changes you know, we'll just be sort of guided now more to, you know, adopt a more human-centred approach. So, you know, it's really understanding the user. I think I can summarise the sort of the four guiding principles of this legislative or this DSAP reform. Well, they state that people with a disability have a right to access public transport, of course, and that accessibility is a service not an exercise in compliance and we should all be designing beyond minimum standards. So like, you know, for example, adding a ramp at the entry is not really an equitable outcome. We should be aiming to design out that ramp. And then the third principle is that solutions should meet the service needs of all stakeholders and be developed through co-design. So this means taking the same approach we have on Cross River Rail to undertake a co-design and equivalent access process. So we are we're designing Cross River Rail obviously under you know, the current 
DSAP legislation that points to outdated standards and therefore does not always provide the most inclusive or accessible outcomes. But we've been undertaking this rigorous equivalent access process, so producing performance-based solutions that allow us to adopt best practice, inclusive design outcomes that, that really suits each station's specific applications. And the final principle of the DSAT reform is that reform, you know, should strive for certainty. So minimum standard compliance outcomes, you know, they can face a greater risk of failing to meet the objectives of accessible public transport and not actually meet compliance against the Disability Discrimination Act. You know, this can result in rectification costs and disruptions for the customer and the operator. And, you know, certainty means consistency. So, consistency in the whole of journey experience. So, considering the arrival experience and the type of information available and considering the connecting journeys to experience sort of other modes of transport and and community centres. So, the, yeah, like I think the new DSAP legislation, I think it's really great that it kind of talks about co-design and actually understanding your users that allows you to design better, really, at the end of the day. Yeah. So how do you think this will transform the quality of its users? Is it in that, you mentioned that fourth reform or the fourth change to DSAP being this idea of introducing a continuous journey? Do you think it's mainly in that, that it'll transform the quality of the life of its users? Yeah. Like I think there's there's lots to it. And, you know, Every project is different and, you know, where you can have connection to other forms of transport, absolutely, that's that will transform the quality of people's journeys and, and lives. But I think ultimately the legislative reform gives people a voice. Yes. It also gives designers like us the ability to learn and to become better designers. Yeah. I mean, like I've said before, the most inclusive outcomes are only possible when you know who you are designing for and start to understand their lived experiences. And I think, you know, the DSAT reform is, is, yeah, is pushing us in that direction. So, you know, it's only when we have this kind of understanding we can start to remove barriers and provide equitable outcomes. Yeah. I think, you know, in terms of changing lives, like obviously accessibility and Consistency in public transport design, you know, is essential to the functioning of our society and communities at, you know, making a trip to the supermarket and visiting friends and going to a concert or even going to the doctor can be cheaper and safer and easier when we design beyond minimum standards. Yeah, like I think when I had my daughter, I tried to travel by train around the city and pretty quickly realised that uh, it was quite cumbersome with a pram. So, you know, I think ultimately it just provides that connection back into community. Yeah, absolutely. What was that phrase that the Cross River Rail Delivery Authority Access Reference Group used? Yeah, nothing about us without us. So I love that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it's it's very true. You, You can't design without them we can't you can't design without their voice so I think that's a that's right change 
exactly. Yep. So how does architecture currently, and not just specific to urban transport or rail, how does architecture exclude its users faced with challenges such as mobility, low or no vision, hearing impairment and more from the narrative? Well, I think with most things it's a case of you don't know what you don't know, right? (laughs) So, I mean, I always say there's no real excuse for ignorance. (laughs) Like we all have a social responsibility to be more aware and to continue to learn and develop. I think, you know, traditionally human-centred design or the connection of physical form to society and our responsibilities in providing this service is probably historically not taught to us very well by institutions. So, you know, in the past there's probably been a lot more focus around the physical function and the aesthetic need of buildings and less focus on the social, psychological and emotional needs of users. But I do see this changing, which is amazing. Earlier this year I did a tour of far north Queensland schools to speak to students interested in studying architecture and it was so great to see that human-centered design was a key part of their curriculum like they were asking so many questions and they were already doing it yeah so I think you know it probably hasn't been something that's that's built into our education in the past but it's definitely changing and Mm -hmm. like I also think you know there, there is an obvious underrepresentation of people with disabilities practicing architecture. Yeah, like I, I don't know why that is. Maybe this is why it's so important to design inclusive and equitable public transport and learning institutions, maybe to remove some barriers that may exist, you know, allowing people to to access higher education and employment. I'm not sure, but like I, I hope in the future that we see, you know, a bit more of a diverse architectural cohort. I think that will bring lots of value to our practice. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I definitely don't think, or it wasn't my experience when I was going through both school and tertiary education that equitable design was built into the curriculum. So it's good to hear that that's changing. Yeah, it was great to see that. So in your Marion's List membership blurb, you mentioned this idea of design empowering members of society. How do you think architecture manages to do this? So empower its members of society and similarly, how does it disempower its users? Yeah. Well, I mean, architecture and the physical environment has probably traditionally been the disabling factor. So I think you know, therefore, our profession actually provides probably a key service in removing these barriers. Mm. You know, we, like, we as architects, we're critical thinkers and we like to challenge what is normal. We like to challenge what is business as usual, which I think is great and can result in some really, you know, different and innovative design solutions. Yeah, I think probably for too long, Our cities have been designed to segregate the disabled and, you know, different minority groups. But I think, you know, we are now working to undo and heal this and we are working towards making our cities inclusive to everyone. You know, an architect's key in this, like 
we are really great listeners and we're really great collaborators. So, you know, co-design process, processes are really great. And, you know, I think we really have the ability to empower people and give people voices. You know, essentially we can turn their problems into solutions. We're really great at that. So I think, yeah, I think architecture can really empower society in that way. And, yeah, you said, you know, also how does architecture disempower? Well, like I think I mentioned before that, you know, architecture without empathy can sometimes leave people behind. Like I think historically society, not just architects, probably view disability with a sense of otherness, like, you know, it's not of our own, we we don't relate. And I think therefore, you know, without malice, maybe we don't always design, you know, that kind of equitable or independent access opportunities into all buildings. Mm. It's probably less prevalent, you know, in public spaces, well, now more so than before, but probably still quite common in the residential space. You know, obviously don't work in that space, but from what I see in here, like I think housing choices are really limited for people with disabilities and often, you know, they're left with doing pretty major modifications, which is really costly. Yes. Yeah. So I think, you know, especially with the housing crisis, we probably need to do a lot more in the accessible housing space for the, you know, like I said before, like these one in six Australians with a disability. But, you know, I think, it, well, it's great actually from October this year that the livable housing standard is is going to be included in the NCC. So, you know, all new housing must meet those requirements. So, like, again, I think things are changing, which which is a positive. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think about some of the places that I've lived in over the years of living in Brisbane, and I can't think of one that's equitable. So it's great to see and hear that there'll be changes to the NCC coming into place. Yeah, like I mean, it relates to residential. Yeah, like I mean, the Queenslander typology isn't super accessible, right? No, not at all. <laughs> no. Yeah. Up yeah. on stilts, no, not at all. Yeah, that's it. Accessible so, by know. stairs. Yeah. 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 Well, and it's also like what you say, you don't know what you don't know. So this idea of implementing co-design strategies is just, it's a very positive way forward. Yeah. It's that process of learning. Yeah. Yeah. And hopefully to continue to empower users or in some cases start to empower users. Yep. Definitely. In an ideal world, what are some improvements to the practice of architecture that you think would benefit the industry? Well, I think we need to share our knowledge and our project lessons probably with each other and with the wider industry. You know, sharing all of our lessons will help us all to improve our practice and our cities are obviously the beneficiary of this. So I guess, for example, like we've spoken about a few times now tonight, like co-design is obviously really great and really important to inclusive design and gaining equitable design outcomes. You know, like in my experience, obviously, with people with disabilities, but, you know, there's also co-designing with First Nations Australians. 
But I think like, you know, it's probably important to recognize that as an industry, we might start to overwhelm these representatives and communities the more we co-design. So like I've been thinking recently about like how could we take the pressure off and still learn and therefore design better and like pondering it lately I think you know the answer probably lies in sharing well us sharing our project outcomes and innovations with each other but you know how can we how can people share their lived experiences and stories and maybe there's a way like that we can use technology like maybe AI or VR to capture this knowledge and to capture these lived experiences. Like, yeah, I think there's something in that. I don't know what it is, but also like I think it's really important that, you know, maybe this technology can also be, can also provide like ongoing financial support to all of the contributors who do share their stories like that's really important too yeah I don't know like I think I'd love to explore this further (laughs) (laughs) I just think like this sort of approach where they're you know we're kind of sharing knowledge more broadly could mean that you know for the next rail project or the next uh, similar project that you know we're not starting from scratch but you know we can have this kind of bank of knowledge and then really just target and focus in on you know unique project challenges in in a co-design process so you kind of you're not overwhelming disability groups or first nation australians or other groups that you might be co-designing with like i think that could be a real thing in the future too yeah i think architectural practices internally are very good at looking at the lessons learned but you're right we don't often broadly share those lessons learnt within industry and we would definitely all benefit from that. Definitely, yeah. Contrasting to what is already implemented into society, how do you think the current developments in architecture can benefit further? Well, like like I think, no, like I think I was thinking about this and like I think Inclusive design really needs to be kind of included in this like sustainable design narrative that we're hearing all of the time. Like we're really great at talking about and measuring our use of renewables and recyclables, recyclables and like curbing carbon emissions, but probably not so great at talking about the longevity of, you know, equitable designs that can be like super flexible and adaptable and over time can change to meet the needs of users, which is a super sustainable outcome, right? Yeah, like I, th- I think, you know, it's probably just something that really needs to be picked up in in that dialogue for sure. Yeah, definitely. And are there some examples of architectural initiatives that you think have benefited society already? and? That are already in place? Yeah, like there are some really great platforms like Parlour and the Champions for Change Coalition that I think are really benefiting, I guess, our practice of architecture and therefore society. Like 
these platforms are driving policy change, diversity, inclusion, they're sharing research and resources that do educate us. And I believe that this type of systemic and social shake-up really has a ripple effect to the way we practice architecture, you know, right through to the buildings we deliver. So I think, you know, these platforms are really empowering and, you know, they're really encouraging a diverse practice, making us more aware and empathetic. Yeah, I think also like we are seeing similar initiatives that are, you know, driving policy change around inclusive design, obviously sustainability, designing for country, all of these things that really do benefit society. I think it's just really about challenging business as usual. We just need to keep doing that. Yeah, I think platforms Don't do the same like thing. Parler, yeah. <laughs> I think platforms like Parler are really good at interrogating what's already in place now and trying to improve it. So Yeah. yeah definitely. Yeah, agree. it's just having the conversations. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Opening yeah. up the door to new opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. So we've talked about now and we've talked about changes into the future we're coming into our last questions Mm -hmm. so what do you hope to see in practice and in the next 10 years of your career well I think you know probably just to summarize what I've already spoken about I really hope to continue seeing like a shift towards holistic design approaches you know I think we're all beginning to understand that inclusive design is process and that accessible design is an outcome yeah like we already engage with specialist consultants and with community groups when we design our projects so I know we can really embrace a co-design process that improves you know essentially outcomes accessible outcomes and can also you know increase connection to country and all of these things when when voices are heard so yeah I'm excited to see our industry connect to the disability community, First Nations Australians and all of the beneficiaries of our architecture, so all of the users. And, I, you know, I love that we're, we're opening up our practice to co-design sort of rather than designing in this insular, isolated way. Mm. Yeah, I'm sure in the next 10 years of delivering public transport projects, I will also, I'm sure I'll see our clients value inclusive design more also. I think they'll begin to see the social and economic benefits that projects like Cross River Rail deliver. So yeah, I think it's just going to get better. And lastly, what's next? Well, I hope I can continue delivering these amazing city shaping transport projects, not just, you know, across the nation, but hopefully across the world. That would be really exciting. (laughs) I'm always looking for ways to challenge myself and, you know, to listen and learn and grow and innovate. Maybe there's a cool bridge project in my future. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, There's lots of green bridges in Brisbane. That's true. Um, They're pretty cool. Lots of talks about lots of green bridges. Yeah. But, yeah, I know I'll continue to be open to learning. Ultimately, I think education is key to success. When we understand the positive social impacts, 
and better user experiences, you know, from creating design that is inclusive of all people. I think that's when we elevate our practice, our cities and our society. I think for me, more importantly, I will continue to be an advocate and ally, sharing my lessons and experiences to help others. That's fantastic. Well, thank you, Tanya. Thank you for volunteering your time to be a part of the Institute's Hearing Architecture podcast and for telling us about your career and what led you to receiving the Emerging Architect Prize. Thank you for your time and hope to talk to you again soon. Thanks, Bridie. It was my pleasure. This has been Hearing Architecture, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. Thank you so much for listening and thank you so much to our guest, registered architect Tanya Galichniko from Hassel. Thank you so much for sharing the stories about your experience and all the important work you've undertaken in infrastructure projects. We look forward to speaking with you again in the future. Our sponsor Brickworks also produce architecture podcasts hosted by Tim Ross. You can find The Art of Living, Architects Abroad and The Power of Two at brickworks.com.au or your favourite podcast platform. If you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. If you want to know more about the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy. And the Imagine production team was Bradio O'Toole and Daniel Moore. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification or advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.